0: My guest today is Professor Sabina Kastner, who's Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Princeton University. The goal of our research program is to better understand how large scale networks operate during cognition with a particular emphasis on interactions between cortex and the thalamus. Welcome Sabina. Thank you for
1: having me, Joe.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your papers I find extremely interesting. So from 2019, a a rhythmic theory of attention. You say recent evidence has demonstrated that environmental sampling is a fundamentally rhythmic process, Uh, both perceptual sensitivity during covert spatial attention and the probability of covert exploratory movements are tethered to theta band activity at three, three to eight hertz in the attention network. Uh, I always wondered about this. So, you know, the brain is obviously a complex computer. Some say it's a quantum computer. We, we don't have any evidence for that yet. But um, how does it actually do all this stuff is actually quite perplexing, right? Um, and so, environmental sampling uh, seems a lot of sense to me. Um, Given a given a capacity, you have to sort of figure out, um, you know, without without uh, kind of going to the entire design space, what might be happening with a sample, right? So, 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 what's the what's the sort of the primary theme in this paper, rhythmic theory of attention?
1: so the paper deals with um a cognitive function that i have studied for uh, almost my entire career so for about 30 years um and that's what we call attention function so when we try to focus and to direct our you know resources that we have towards a certain goal we uh, have to blend out a lot of other stuff that we're doing so for instance if we have a behavioral goal and we say, you know, we want to know, uh, listen and and view this this video cast here, then we can go to dinner or do do something, you know, that's really opposite to it. Um, And the resources that we use use to basically focus on something that we want to pursue right now and then, you know, throw all the other competing ideas out there, that is part of attention function. And attention function can be uh, best or easiest let's put it that way perhaps studied when we just look at our environment our environment is very cluttered and if we want to you know focus on something in our typical environments uh, then we have to basically uh, blend out all the other thing all these distracting information needs to get filtered away and so these set of problems what is the cognitive network in our brain that accounts for our ability to focus and to blend out everything that anything that may be distracting to us, that has um, uh, occupied me for a really, really long time. And what fascinates me, so in, in initial steps, what, what we did using brain imaging in uh, adult human brains is we just wanted to see the network that is engaged when we do something very simple. So we could do something very simple like um, You know, just just focusing on a particular person in a crowd that is in front of us in our new, you know, visual uh, in our new uh, Zoom worlds that we live in, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, But if you just do that, if you just, you know, focus on the person, you know, um, across from you, for instance. um, You can do that within a very short period of time, let's say it takes you 200 or 300 milliseconds, that's a quarter of a second. It's really a short uh, period of time Um, but what you do in your brain is to engage a vast network that is composed of um you know dozens and dozens of different nodes and it spans all the different lobes of the brain from the posterior part to the anterior part to the frontal brain it um, encompasses also deep brain regions and so on so when you see that actually activated this network in a human brain uh, doing something so simple and so fast and so effective it makes you think like how can that be how can that network just process all that information within these you know 200 300 milliseconds to um, make us you know that selection that we are focusing on that person a- um, across from us and not you know all the other things and so that led us into this problem how these different parts of our attention network interact with each other. And that is what we have studied for a very, very long time to to understand how these different parts communicate with each other, what each node contributes to the computation. And we do that using this function because attention function is fundamental to everything we do cognitively. So, for instance, now that I speak here and try to explain that to you, I need attention function. I need to focus on what I'm saying right now, even though, you know, my most prominent output is, of course, my language system that I'm using. But attention function is fundamental to everything. And if it goes wrong, um, you know, people with attention deficits really, really struggle because they cannot do a lot of things where you need attention function for. and so this is why we are focusing on, on this very kind of fundamental cognitive function, but in our thinking this uh, uh, the understanding of how this network uh, operates will lead to a deeper understanding how any cognitive network in the brain um, operates because all cognition is organized into these very vast brain networks that miraculously work just, you know, seamlessly together every single moment of our existence. And that is kind of the deeper problem that we are really interested yeah. in. Yeah.
0: It makes a lot of sense. So I would imagine from an evolutionary perspective, um, you know, focus was important. Um, right? I mean if you if you cannot focus, you're going to be eaten. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and there there is nothing that's coming out of that. So uh, but the, you get a lot of data coming into your system, into your brain, and so you know we have this problem in artificial intelligence. Um, AI companies might disagree with me. the The real problem in AI is how to discard information efficiently, right. not to analyze information. We know how to analyze small pieces of information. That is that is pretty well understood. What is not understood is how to discard information. That's not important, right? Um, you know, hundred thousand years of evolution has given the brain that capability. It seems to me, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in some sense, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? I mean, how yes. does the brain discard useless information?
1: Exactly, and that is, you know, one uh, big part of that attention function is probably the bigger part because. You are kind of selecting when you're attending to something you're interested in, so the, the person across from you, let's say, but at the same time you're filtering out the vast majority of the information that is available to you at any moment in time so that filtering is, you know, kind of the bigger part and it is as important um, as the selection itself, I think for some people, particularly in uh, some of the attention deficits, it's the bigger problem. It's this constant interference that people have from other information that intrudes and keeps you from focusing on the important information that um, you know that that you want to uh, select, but you can't because there's all this constant intrusion from uh, this distracting information again that's the vast majority so uh, these kinds of mechanisms of how these filters work and where they are located in the brain um, and how they they do these computations that's certainly you know something that is very much at the heart of of what we're interested in but i want to talk a little bit um because you you just referred to that paper and that's a new theory of attention it's a rhythmic theory i want to tell you a little bit about these rhythms because they are they're really quite interesting so attention function was um Thought to be static for most uh, uh, for for the longest time for most of the history of of the field of neuroscience, or the field of psychology actually. So that means that when you you know focus somewhere again the, the person across from you let's say you um, perceive that focus that you're taking continuously information in there. So uh, that's just how you perceive it subjectively. But what we see when we do actually uh, careful experiments is that there is a waxing and waning. So over time, uh, there are periods when you can actually take more information in, and then there are other periods where you cannot take as much in. So it's an up and down. It is a a constant uh, rhythm um, that um, has these kind of preferred uh, periods and then the, the less preferred periods for, um, processing sensory information from the environment. Now, what mm-hmm. happens in these periods that are not preferred for sensory information? That's a, a that's a time when we could actually shift our gaze. So, the way we explore visually our um, our uh, environment is by moving our eyes from place to place, and we do that um, a lot during you know uh, a given any given day. And um, so we, we think that uh, the, this attention rhythm that we have identified is a rhythm that basically emphasizes more a sensory state where we can process sensory information from the environment and it alternates by a state which is could be thought of as more of a motor state where we can move our eyes to a new location of interest in the visual field across us or we could move a limb during that period of time so it's more a motor emphasized state but yeah. this back and forth between these two states is very characteristic of attention function, and we think it describes an organizational principle of that network. So it sets up these different states, and it gives it kind of a structure, an internal structure that this uh, network goes by.
0: Yeah, this is this is really fascinating, Sabina. So. Um So there are two things going on there. One is sort of the perception. So data coming in, you're making some decisions, there's some water functions that you can send some signals to, to move your eyeballs around and so on. And so the the question is, how does the brain decide when to do what, right? Uh, It's sort of an optimization problem. So suppose I have the goal you know, I have a goal to you know to identify the, the lion or whatever the case may be. Got a thousand years ago, um, and I have to sort of uh, figure out. Some information came in. I could move my eyes around, uh, so that is sort of one motor function that I can do. I can take the information in, maybe partial information. I can analyze it and make a decision. So it's sort of a very complex optimization problem, right?
1: So, yeah, it's uh, the way people um, think about it, and I think uh, there's still, you know, a uh, call out whether that's really how it works. But I think it's a kind of a good way to, to approach the problem is that they are, we call these uh, priority maps in the brain. So there are some brain regions that provide a map that is indexing our priorities. And so on on every point in this map, you have, let's say, a priority that could be driven by something that's out there in the world. And that's important to us. Let's say the lion, right, who wants to eat us. So that would get kind of a very, very big representation there um, if it comes to this situation. But at the same time, you can also map things that are internally driven onto this. So not not often or not that often actually we are reacting just something that you know happens in our environment very often you know we are motivated internally motivated to do something but also what you know these kinds of preferences that we would set would map onto this priority map and if there's for instance, now a conflict but when you know something that happens outside and something that that you know we, we have prefer uh, 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 preferentially uh, put you know internally um, onto this map, then you can see that these things could add up. They can also compete with each other depending on you know what the situation is. Um, but basically this priority map is a mechanism that um, lets you follow through with whatever your goals are. So you know if my internal goals are taking over because they are more strongly represented, um, then, you know, whatever happens out there in the environment, somebody enters the room, it doesn't interest me, right? Um, at another time, um, I may expect somebody. So now when a door opens, you know, that is high in my priority map and I will react to it. So uh, you can think about these maps as kind of a guidance that sums up all the different things that are there that are important for uh, for my ongoing behavior. and. Um, you know, represents it somehow so that this decision process that needs to be done uh, can be guided.
0: Yeah, so so we'll talk about this a little later, uh, Sabina. So the priority maps that we carry in the modern context, um, I would argue, could be also biased, right? So it, it depends on certain set of expectations. Mm -hmm. and so we don't have the lions killing us anymore but we have the in the modern context we still have competition we still have expectations and so so if the brain is carrying a priority map based on history recent history let's say you know last 20 30 40 years that could bias your decision processes too i would imagine
1: oh yeah so you can basically this priority map can contain anything that contributes to ongoing uh, behavior it can be you know an old memory that for some reason is important for that right and it will get mapped on retrieved and mapped onto this priority map so this is a very broad construct um, and you can you know have your current expectation you can have you know past experiences um, that, um, you know, guide you at the moment. So you, you can really think about it very, very broadly. So it's not something, it's something that probably changes from moment to moment, but it can encompass really a lot of different brain systems that kind of feed into and that, you know, provide that guidance.
0: I want to touch on, this is part of the paper, I want to touch on ADHD um, quickly. So... So ADHD is is a attention deficient syndrome. Um, is this a problem where the brain is sort of taking in lot of information and sort of not having a prioritization of that information and getting confused? Is that the way to think about it?
1: um I would put it a little bit uh, different so let me you know think about this um, or we can take as a starting point actually two things we talked about one is this um, rhythmic uh, theory and the other one is the filtering of unwanted information that attention function can do so let me just start with the rhythmic uh, theory so I told you that um, uh, what happens in this attention network is there's back and forth, but in a more sensory-emphasized state, uh, during which we can take in a lot of information from the environment, or also from you know internal sources. Um, and um, I'm sorry, I know you're back. I for for a moment I lost you here. Um, and um, and you have uh, a more motor-emphasized state where you can move your eyes um, or you know uh, other parts of your Uh, motor system, basically, or you can use your motor system. Um, Now, when you translate that into what we typically see in this, uh, so ADHD attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it's a huge spectrum. Um, But at the extreme ends of that spectrum, interestingly, we kind of see these two states, but only one of it in, in a more pure way. So we have these kids. Um, who are actually, they strictly don't have an attention deficit, they are hyper-focused. They can play chess for hours at a time, but they will never make it to the dinner table. Because what they cannot do is to switch out of that state and do something else. So they seem to be kind of frozen in that state where they can process a lot of information, but it's just directed to this one particular goal. And what gives them trouble, for instance, in the classroom is that they have to change a lot from task to task. They have to switch constantly and they they are not good at that. And that is something that gives them the trouble. But um, they can focus very well well in the strictest sense, but they cannot do the switching, which is actually the other state. And then you have kids at the other spectrum, that's the other extreme, um, that basically have a very hyperactive motor system. So they go from one thing to the next, but they can never find the focus. Um, so they're all over the place. Um, but they have difficulty in finding that kind of processing time that they need in order to take in sufficient information. Um, so we think a little bit about ADHD, you know, in, in this kind of, in these extreme ways, and then you have everything in between in the spectrum. Yeah. Um, but. Um, so, this is also why we think that these uh, that these um, attention states that we have found in our recent work may really account for some of the pathology that we see in attention uh, in attention deficit disorders. Now, um, the other uh, part that we discussed previously, though, is really, really important here in my view, and that is that, um, in my experience, a lot of kids with ADHD have real trouble filtering unwanted information. They just, even if they can focus relatively well, for them, it is so much harder to suppress distracting information. And that um, is, uh, is, a, is a real, you know, challenge for, for that condition. And so, you know, one hope of the work, the kind of work that we are doing is that we will understand these filters better so that we can understand how they work or not work or work differently in ADHD kids. Because once you understand that, you can tune up almost anything in the brain again. So brains are very plastic. You just have to understand what you tune them to. And um, and once we understand that better, that's the hope that you could really help kids with uh, interventions that are driven by brain science and based on basic mechanisms that we, um, we have explored as, as neuroscientists.
0: Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, Sabina, so you're saying it's sort of two different diseases put into one bucket. Uh, AD is one disease, HD is another, <laughs> in some sense. So, um, I, I don't believe I have AD, but I, I believe I have HD, you know. Uh, and so anything in between. So the the interventions have to be sort of customized Yes, uh, really understanding that, right?
1: Yes, and that is, I think, not what you know uh, the standard is in, uh, uh, in in a lot of places uh, across the globe. So um, uh, still, kids get medicated in, in the first place uh, with medication that helps about a third of them, but not the other two thirds. So uh, you, you wonder what's going on there, and even you know, if it helps, it's a very broad medication. So it's not really clear necessarily what, uh, you know, the, the underlying mechanisms are that, that get affected. Um, so, you know, in, in uh, the best of my world, um, we would basically do a very careful evaluation of the profile of each individual care to understand what what are those struggles that um, or challenges that are in the foreground. So is it about uh, that I cannot filter uh, information, or um, that unwanted information, distractor information, or is it that you know I have this hyperactive motor system that's kind of in my way because it always wants to do something else than other parts of my brain, um, or is it you know that switching part? So really to tease that apart um, in the first place at a behavioral level, but then really think about. Um, Can we measure that at the brain level? Can we find an objective measure, um, you know, and then uh, help kids in more informed ways from there? So that's kind of you know one of the goals of of my overall research program. Even though it's a you know it's what we call a basic research program, so I don't have it's not geared towards you know clinical interventions per se. But uh, since I'm a trained trained medical doctor, I my work is always. You know, geared towards uh, that dimension, um, and and you know, and it's born out of the truth. I think it's not a belief; it's really the truth. Once you understand something, you can fix something, right? If you understand um, the uh, the the motor of your car if it breaks, you can you can fix it. If you don't understand it, you have to bring it to somebody who understands it. And it's the same with the brain and principle, right? Um, Once we understand certain. Um, uh, circuits and networks better, um, we might be able to help improve function in a in a very mechanistic way, just like fixing a car. Uh, yeah. might be a little bit more complex than that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as, as you're talking, I was wondering, so we have moved away from ADHD being a disease state to ADHD being a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, and spectrum typically, you know, sort of an implication of, Uh, a single dimension spectrum. If I understand you correctly, it's sort of a a matrix because AD and HD are different, different states, uh, if I understand you correctly. And so we can't really treat these um, abnormalities without really understanding what part of that two-dimensional matrix you might be in. Right. I mean, it's 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 different things. Is that yeah. do I understand it correctly?
1: Yeah, I mean, they are. You know, they have an interdependence, and that's what our research shows. Right, they are not independent of each other. But um, yeah, but absolutely, you need to understand that to, uh, you know, to, to move forward. Um, and and we, you know, this is just in in standard practice. It, this is just not not um, applied yet.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so I want to go into another fascinating paper that you have, um, a brief comparative review of primate posterior uh, parietal cortex, a novel hypothesis on the human tool maker. Um, so you say a primate visual system contains two major cortical pathways, a ventral temporal pathway that has been associated with object processing and recognition, and a dorsal parietal pathway that has been associated with uh, spatial processing and action guidance. Um, yeah, I always wondered about this. I know nothing about this, but um, so, so so you have to put yourself in sort of a space time matrix, and then you see an object. Uh, I'm again, you know, rewinding time 100,000 years ago. <laughs> How did the human brain sort of process this information the context right um, so that is sort of the sort of the fundamental question here isn't it
1: um in the toolmaker paper
0: the toolmaker thing yeah
1: um yeah so the um the question that I had starting to uh, you know to to think about and look at um the tool making and the representation of tool information um was a little bit different um so you we have in the so i have studied the the human brain for a very long time but i've also studied the monkey brain uh, So now the primate and um we have of course a lot of functions that are human specific language is one of them uh but there are many many functions that are human specific and is language it, is
0: language really human-specific
1: though? So language in these in the form is grammatical structure, yes. So you know, even um, birds who have these very, very complex songs, uh, they can learn new songs and so on and so forth, and they can put together new sequences. Um, there is no evidence that there is a grammar to it. So the grammar is the most important part here so and and language for a lot of language scientists is actually defined that it has to have a grammar otherwise it doesn't count as as a language which is probably not quite fair because there are language systems that are very elaborate and they do not have a grammatical structure but um, but yeah that's what I mean with the human specific part of of, you know language system now um, the but with some of these systems we don't really have good models you know we don't know how they really evolve so they evolve obviously um but we don't know what the precursors are now with tool making so tool making uh there are many many examples for tool makers in the animal kingdom so humans are not the only ones but humans are by far the most sophisticated tool makers And we have this ability uh, from very early on. I mean, you know, you see um, a one and a half year child or something like that. There's a ball, a toy rolling under, um, you know, into an occluded space under a bed or something like that. That kid will find a stick or some kind of extension of your arm because you can't reach what what is out of sight there. And will find an extension and get, you know, that toy. Um, out of there again. Um, This is a very simple example of an invention of a tool because that stick or whatever you're using there was never meant particular for that purpose and humans are just fantastic in in just um, you know, inventing on the fly some kind of tools that they need if they have to solve a problem, right? And um, and then of course, you know, you have uh, real tools that we are making too, and so on and so forth, and we can fabricate the the most interesting things with that. So that kind of sophistication is there from very, very early on. And I find it interesting because you cannot, for instance, train a monkey to become a toolmaker. Most monkeys are not toolmakers, they just, they're not innovative on that end. Um, But they have a machinery and their parietal cortex that we share to some extent and then we get additional networks in parietal cortex a brain region about here actually you know I have my brain uh, used for um, uh, for uh, instances like this right here so the the parietal cortex so this is here the brain from the side this is the frontal cortex this is yeah. the posterior cortex and the parietal cortex is right up here on top if you like yeah now the tool uh, the networks that we use when you know we are uh, doing something engaging with tools and so on they are all in in the parietal cortex and they are not present in other species so these networks are not new evolu- evolutionary new and they are human specific most likely i mean we have not studied mm probably enough species to really be sure. Uh, But they are very unique to humans in many regards. And what interested me about um, the toolmaker is um, we have now, we know a lot about this machinery from non-human primates, from monkeys, um, at a very mechanistic level, much more than what we ever will know, at least for now, in the human brain. So we share some of that, but then that machinery develops further, evolves further to give us that very unique ability to be a sophisticated toolmaker. And so this particular um, function gives us more a way to think about how do brains adapt to something new? How do they, you know, gain new real estate? Uh, Because there is a precursor, we share a lot of these regions of parietal cortex that are, for instance, there are regions that where you can get, you know, grasping movements, um, where you, uh, you know, have sophisticated hand movements and so on and so forth. They are represented in, in monkeys and other primates in that region too, and we have them as well, but now we are adding these new things. That get a whole new dimension, and that is what what fascinated me about this toolmaker story. To see how these regions that we share with other primates um, actually, uh, you know, acquire new functionality, if you like, uh, yeah. and then, as a, as an end result, be able to uh, produce something like sophisticated toolmaking.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. So. Uh, you know, um, I do some work in AI. So, the the way that I think about this is that uh, to make a tool, you have to be able to predict or forecast, so to speak, the utility of the tool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a very complicated function, right? Um, you you have to sort of figure out what the tool is going to do for you. Um, and, and th- that takes some real estate, as you say, uh, which, uh, so, so it's the prediction and forecasting capabilities of the human brain. Do you think that is sort of fundamentally differentiates us from, let's say, other primates?
1: Yeah, I, I do think that a big part of what sets us aside is really our enormous planning ability. Right, so we can plan many, many steps ahead. Um, most non-human primates have also some planning ability, um, and there are some fascinating stories about it. Uh, but it is more limited in the in, in terms of um, the timeline. Let's put it that way. So there's, for instance, um, sticking here to the uh, topic of tool making. There's this. Really interesting uh, gorilla uh, species um, that um, where where these gorillas um, they like to um, to eat termites, and in order to get the termites, um, they need uh, certain sticks that have um, a certain you know stability, but they cannot be too rigid; uh, they may break. They cannot be too elastic, otherwise they cannot get into these you know termite uh, mountains basically. Um, And so they have found in their environment kind of the perfect stick that they have looked for, for that purpose. And they go for more than a few miles to get those sticks and then go back to their, you know, termites and then, you know, kind of fish for them. And um, this is interesting because it clearly shows you that these animals not only apply some sophisticated You know physical properties of these sticks to whatever their purpose is there to to optimize their their termite fishing Mm -hmm. but um but they also are able to plan for okay we need to go there because you know even though the termites live here um we we have to get the sticks from far away because that's the only place uh, where we can get them so they can do that planning and that's quite impressive actually but that is probably one of the best examples, you know, we know of um, where, you know, I can plan what I do, you know, on Christmas or what I would like to do on Christmas. Right. I mean, I can plan so far ahead into the future. There are people who plan, you know, almost their entire le- lives, um, at least if it's up to them. Right. And what they want to do with that. And this kind of very complex planning ability that you can go into vast timelines that you also can basically think about what each consequence on the way will have for the planning that comes afterwards right if that works out i can do this but if it doesn't then i probably have to do this and so on um all this kind of you know consequential uh, thinking and reasoning I think this is really, really, very, very unique, and that, of course, goes also into functions like, um, you know, like tool making. Even though probably, you know, the early tool makers, this is a function that developed very uh, slowly, right? So language is something that interestingly develops quickly in the end, but tool making goes over, you know, um, a long period of time. And gets more and more sophisticated. We would not be able to do what um, you know some hominid species did, um, like uh, let's say 250,000 years ago. We we would not. I mean, we have computers these days, but right. we would not be able to to build the tools they had. They became quite quite interesting.
0: so, so let me ask you this. So, I'm perfectly happy thinking humans are superior. But then I go to YouTube, I see some cat videos. I don't do that too and I saw a video recently. Um, so there's a cat sitting uh, by a two-year-old. It's a multi-story building. it is a railing, and uh, the two-year-old is you know sort of um, uh, holding his hand on the railing. and the cat comes from this side, trying to get the hand off the railing of the cat. Mm-hmm. Um, now there they, they, are two ways to interpret this one is maybe the owners of the cat trained the cat to do it and the cat is not really thinking that's option one which we don't know that or the answer to option two is if the cat is really thinking this kid will climb over the railing and fall and I'm going to prevent that
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's a hugely strategic level of thinking that we haven't seen in most animals, right? So, so I get confused sometimes. I mean, the cat videos on YouTube are not very good, very good ways to do science. But this appeared, you know, sort of real to me. So, so what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, I do not think, or I, I don't. So, the way we would, we are going about this situation is uh, very analytical. And I don't think that cats doing that. But animals, um, not only cats, I think have very good intuitions about dangerous situations. Um, and they are also really, really fond of offspring. And, you know, that the two-year-old could be kind of the, the offspring for the cat, right? right? right. Because yeah. that's kind of what the cat has been around. Um, but I think we see that very often, you know, in herding behavior, that there are adult animals who really, you know, watch out for these animals. They will warn them of things that are just very kind of they're there, but not really. So there's a lot of intuition going on about dangerous situations. Um, And so, you know, I could see that something like that um, happens, but I don't think that there is the same, you know, analytical process that that we are engaging with um, happening. So in that regard, the CAD is not thinking, but the CAD is clearly that animal has intuitions and probably wants to, uh, you know, kind of uh, senses that there could be a dangerous situation. So basically the ability to project danger or, you know, to anticipate a dangerous situation, I think that is something that a lot of animals have in a very, very superb way, probably in more superb ways than we would have that in those situations, because I think we have lost some of those instincts on the way, you know, uh, developing all that other machinery up there.
0: All, all the mathematics killed us. Um, <laughs> uh, so so instincts, instincts remain for animals. Um, so, yeah, so, no so I don't wanna,
1: just to make that clear, so I don't think about um, it shouldn't get across that. I think, you know, humans are the most superior beings, you know, in the universe. So this is not uh, it's just uh, talking about functions that sets us aside. But I don't think about it in a in, in this way that, you know, we, we are superior to everything else. Um, I, I don't think about you.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to go into some sort of sensitive topics. Well, it may not be sensitive for you and I, but it might be sensitive for general public. Um, so you have a recent paper, Gender Bias in Ac- Academia, a Lifetime Problem that Needs Solutions. Um, I have to say, Sabina, that you were harsh on me when you did a statistical analysis of my uh, my guess and, uh, and found <laughs> that I have fewer Female professors on, uh, but but you say despite increased awareness of the lack of gender equity in academia and a growing number of initiatives to address issues of diversity, change is slow, and inequalities remain, A major source of inequity is gender bias, you say, which has substantial negative impact on the careers, work-life balance, and mental health of underrepresented groups in science. Um, so I remember you saying that um, full professors in the U.S. universities, is more like one third, thirty percent, thirty-three percent, perhaps. Um, in neuroscience,
1: it's still a lot less.
0: Say it again. Sorry.
1: So in neuroscience, um, that's probably across the board that number that you have. And uh, in so there you know, some uh, sciences in which, like for instance, psychology is a field that is much more balanced. Uh, Neuroscience is still a very uh, male dominated field. So it's actually interesting, but it has changed already a little bit. So when I started um, in my first faculty position, which was also here at Princeton, so that was 20 years ago, uh, there were only 15% full professors in neuroscience in that entire field. And now I think it's closer to 25% and that is a very encouraging number so i do think there is a change there during those last 20 years but it is still not enough and i do i think we are just not we we still just have to do more let's put it that way and this paper was really to remind uh the public and remind our own field that we can do more so it's not basically that we say yeah but we do already so much we can always do more And there are concrete things we can do. And uh, the paper was really to remind everybody of that. And even though it was focused on on gender, um, it's really true for all underrepresented minorities. And there are many, many others um, in in any field. Um, So it just happened to be because it was written mainly by women uh, that we took that as as one example Um, and uh, how to find solutions for this one uh, particular problem. So when you look at the statistics, what what the shocking thing is that, um, so you you look at, uh, let's say graduate school. Uh, So our colleges are very, very balanced gender wise um, at the moment in I think most institutions, uh, which is really wonderful. And then you look at graduate school and it's still very balanced. We have actually, I think we have uh, in the U.S. now 55% females in graduate school in neuroscience, which is really great. Um, but then you look at those next career stages um, at the postdoctoral level, it's already, let's say, 55 male and 45 females. So there are already, you know, some females who dropped out. And then you see basically at each stage along that career ladder, Uh, you get fewer and fewer. So, you know, as uh, assistant professors, you may have, um, I'm making up a number, the the two numbers are in the paper and I don't recall them all, but let's say you have 40% females, right? But then at the associate, at the tenured level, it will be 30%, and at the uh, professor level, it will go somewhere in the 20s. And, um, and the question is, why is that? And what can we do to prevent that from happening? Because it's not that we are starting out there. You know, in the old days you would say, oh yeah, females are just not so interested in sciences. You know, and this is why this happens over time. That's not the problem. You're starting out with just as many, you know, men and women, uh, but then women drop out and there are obviously, you know, some uh, very, very clear factors like, you know, uh, family resources and so on and so forth. But we have to do more on those ends to fix that, uh, to make it just possible for women to stay um, in in their profession. And um, and I, I just think that um, there's not enough that institutions do. There's not enough that, for instance, the national institutes of health are doing. Um, so, for instance, you know, if um, so, you are renewing in the U.S. and Canada, it will be similar. Your grants every five years, but if you had a baby during that period of time. You should get a couple of years added on right, but that's not done. You know, you are just competing in that pool for grant money the same way as your colleagues who didn't have a baby um, and and so on. So um, there should be, you know, some support that comes really from that and that acknowledges that it is important to balance you know, your work life with, with other priorities that you have and so on. And that is just um, that is just not, not done to the extent it, it needs to be done in, in order to, to help that bias.
0: Yeah, I, I was thinking, Sabina, that you know, when I was going through uh, undergraduate engineering school in, in India in the mid-'80s, um, it's a universal problem. We had 250 people, three three of them were women, yeah. so 247 to three. Um, so it's a truly universal problem. Things have improved substantially around the world, but it's not still not equity, as you say. I have a daughter going to medical school now that appears to be sort of 50-50 now in the U.S., so things have dramatically changed. But
1: when you see, you know, as people go up the ladder there of their uh, career or you know, in their careers, that um, you know, men often, you know, kind of dominate in those positions. And again, it is a question, you know, why? Why is that? And and one um, idea is that, um, and I do think uh, there's some truth to it that um, in those leading positions are typically men and they will appoint men to succeed them. Um, For some reason, that is just how it goes and you will not. And you actually uh, can see that once women are in power, things um, do get a little bit more balanced because there is more conscience about that.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I wrote a book in 2009, it's called Flexibility. In which I argued, uh, complex organizations like countries, large companies, should not be should not be led by men. Uh, it was a controversial argument. I argued that men seems to have sort of a process orientation in general. So I'm going to get a lot of a uh, lot of bad email after this. Um, <laughs> Uh, they they seem to have a process orientation compared to women who seem to see sort of a complex organizational construct
1: mm-hmm. so so
0: i was thinking you know united nations large complex countries companies fortune 500 companies um led by men seem to do pretty badly because they 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 appear to have a comp you know sort of a process orientation now that is that is making it you know sort of binary sort of an outcome i'm not saying all men are bad or all women are good but there is there's is something that we need to really think about in the organizational context that there there is a significant bias in one direction and we can demonstrably show that that bias is actually has a negative utility for society right uh, and you can take this to academics you can Take this to um, industry. And so, so the question remains to be how do we correct this? Um, the initial conditions are bad, as you say, for women. Um, and so, so the policy prescription is still unclear. You know, how do you how do you correct this?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and I don't think there is a global solution. Um, for me, it is um a lot more what can each individual do? because we can all kind of put little building blocks together and then you know we get bigger and bigger and bigger in the kind of change that we can make. And they are uh, you know uh, there are a lot of small changes that can be made. and I want to give you just a few examples just from my professional life. So I' am um, putting together a conference for, for next summer with a number of colleagues. And uh, it's, it's a quite prestigious uh, conference, um, and we have about 40 invited speakers. And um, what we do, so we meet for, for a week in Maine and so on. Um, and what we did from the very beginning, so first of all, there, there's a man and a woman organizing this, which, which is great. Um, but we said from the very beginning, we will have half women and half men as speakers um and we will be very very diligent about that and we reached that you know gender balance um in our speaker list i think it's one of the first conferences of that sort that have really reached that gender balance Uh, but again we were from the very beginning we were very very clear about it we were very conscious about it and so you can make these small changes i give you another example that was actually to me uh really uh, made a huge uh, difference to my teaching and I learned about it when you are calling in a discussion on women first um, there will be about about half a, a, a participation of women in the discussion if you call upon a man first it will be about 80% men will contribute and women will just not show their hands. and I have actually uh, done that uh, here in my own teaching not, not only this with um with men and women but also with uh with people of color um so you just have to encourage you just have to constantly you know really encourage and, and try to give those a voice who are a little bit hesitant to speak and um and you can encourage that and it makes a huge difference i think uh to you know that audience to use the students who are learning um and so on and so forth so just Think about when you're calling, when you're leading a discussion and you're calling upon people. Think about that, you know, whom you're calling first can have a huge impact on the discussion, um, uh, on, the, on the bigger discussion. Yeah. Um, so these are really simple things, but um, they are very well documented. There are studies on things like that and so on and so forth. I want to give you a final example. Um, I do a lot of editorial work um, for my field as a service and um, I was offered a few years ago the position of an editor-in-chief which is nice because in neuroscience not many journals are led by a woman Um, and I said to uh, the journal manager well you know I take this position but only if we have an editorial board that is exactly gender balanced which is unheard of actually in the field of neuroscience um, because for some reason uh, women don't do a lot of editorial work but I've changed that so in my journal you have you know lots and lots of women and um, it's just and they discovered something for them I had to you know talk them into doing this with me basically in the beginning but they have enjoyed it a great deal and they just have discovered a skill that they didn't even know about so for me it is you know really encouragement 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 you know i i do this science fair once a year i mean we couldn't do it during the last couple of years because of covid um with young women high school students here at princeton um it's a young women's you know science fair and it's just being there talking to these young women who want to get into science but sometimes they don't know how or what really interests them But to provide this kind of mentorship and encouragement is just so important. And even though it doesn't change the world, you know, again, it is this little kind of block that you change. You can change in a few lives, you can make a little change. And if a lot of people are doing that, we can make an impact um, that, uh, you know, that that affects people and and, uh, will bring positive change. It is not taking care of the structural changes that we will need, but they could grow from there.
0: You have to start somewhere. Uh, As you say, initial conditions matter a lot. And initial conditions even in discussion in a conference matter a lot. Um, And so I think those things are quite important. So so I want to uh, sort of finish up with your bringing kids into the scientific review process uh paper you say frontiers for young minds puts kids in charge of scientific publications by having them control the review process Mm -hmm. um i i i I couldn't quite understand this so so how do you do this
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's a it's a good question so this was uh born about seven years ago of some you know uh, conversations I had with uh, good good friends and colleagues, um, and and uh, my my collaborator and friend Bob Knight from UC Berkeley was uh, kind of the the uh, really the mastermind behind that. We were both talking about how we, we felt like uh, that the science education for young kids, especially late elementary school, middle school kids in the us and probably worldwide is is really not great and um and then you know in high school they get more exposure but that is at a time when the kids you know may not be so interested in science anymore what we saw was that these these younger kids they just love science i mean they're so curious about the world about everything and was just like how can we kind of you know foster that curiosity So we have this idea that uh, scientists could write up their original research or, you know, concepts uh, about what's going on in their science. So for kids, so these are briefer articles. They are not as complex in terms of, you know, vocabulary and complexity of sentence structure and so on. But they do reflect the science that gets reported, so they are not some kind of, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse versions of the science or so. So it's it's really the true science, but presented in a in a more simple way so that you know, a younger child can can understand that with the vocabulary that um, children of that age have. And then uh, we wanted to empower children by basically telling us whether we did a good job in that attempt or not. So we have kid reviewers and they give us feedback on whether they understand the figures or the figures are too complicated, whether they understand the article or some of the parts of the article were not really clear to them, etc., etc. So they basically write a review to us and there are typically graduate students and now some adults who help them in the process. We don't leave them alone with that. Um, And then our authors will incorporate that and the article will be published um, on a website, Frontiers for Young Minds. Um, so you can, everybody can Google that. Um, who listens to this? And um, we have an illustrator who gives, you know, each article a unique cartoon. And uh, we started out with neuroscience and have about, I don't know, 150 articles probably in neuroscience from all kinds of areas. So we have covered a lot of ground by now. Uh, but we have also expanded the journal to other uh, science areas. So we have uh, one on health, we have one on um, environmental issues, um, we have one on space. Um, so uh, the, the idea is that we would over time really build this repository of the latest science that gets reported there, but in kid-friendly ways. Kids don't have to wait until they get into high school to learn about science um and even in high school the the textbooks are pretty outdated so it's not that they really reflect the latest science that's going on um and so we, we started um and uh, published this online uh this is done uh with a platform that the nature publishing group um uh, contributed um and um uh, that was in, in 2014 and at, at and it was launched in November, and we had six clicks at the end of the year. So that's how we started. Um, And now, you know, we have millions and millions of clicks. The kids really like that. We have reached every single country around the globe, which is really phenomenal. Many of uh, the articles, I've contributed a few articles to the Kids Journal, um, have more clicks than I would ever get, you know, with my Uh, peer-reviewed articles that are read just by my colleagues. Um, So it's a great, you know, educational um, initiative that we started and it has taken off in in unique ways. We are now translating uh, the journal content into major um, world languages. The first two are Hebrew and Arabic, but uh, we have now translations into Chinese, into portuguese and spanish so we really want to open this up uh to you know the children of the world not the children of english-speaking countries is there a,
0: is there a website people can go to Sabina, to, to look it yeah, at Yeah,
1: it is um and let me just i can google it in the background i should of course know it off the top of my head but i
0: i it's mean it's a fantastic yeah. idea um um you know, it, it sort of goes to this initial condition question <laughs> you know if you get involved early then yeah. you have a much higher i'll get you
1: the website. website in a second here my browser right. is a little bit slow because of the um, of of the video that we're wanting yeah i mean
0: understanding the scientific method as you say in the paper um It's an important concept, isn't it? I mean, um, the most important thing, at least from my perspective in education is the ability to ask questions. Um, You know, if if education is about feeding people with data, it's not going to really do something, do anything, I think. Uh, It has to be the process of asking questions yeah and to ask questions, you have to really get involved. Um, you should be able to challenge um what is out there, right? I mean, you know again i would I would say that we don't really know much yet. I mean, we made up some things <laughs> um, in cosmology and neuroscience and in economics, we have some stuff that we made up, but I don't think any of that is actually true. <laughs> I would argue. So asking questions, I think, is going to be quite important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, web address is kids.frontiersin.org. I think it will be easier to look for frontiers for young minds, and just Google that and get there. and we just. Uh, if, you had
0: Google, if you Google Frontiers for Young Minds, you'll find frontiers it.
1: Frontiers right? for Young Minds. Yeah. That's right. We were just celebrating 10 million views since I'm just uh-huh. on that page. Yeah. And we just published actually a very, very unique collection of articles. It's from Nobel Prize winners. So we asked a dozen of Nobel Prize winners to write about their work and that was just published. Uh, so you can see that we are really very successful in engaging the, uh, our community to contribute to this uh, educational uh, initiative. And um, and it's also, it's, it's just truly international, which is beautiful, you know, it's really without any borders.
0: Right, right, excellent. Excellent, Savina, this has been great. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: This has been
0: fun. Thank you. you. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com